0: As chapter 17 of Genesis opens, 13 years have passed since the events that were reported in chapter 16 in the book of Genesis. So I'd like to invite you to open, open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 17, where Abram receives a new name, Genesis chapter 17. In chapter 16, Sarai, who at the time was unable to conceive a child, nevertheless, conceived a scheme to help God along with the fulfillment of the promise. It would appear, at least on the surface, it would appear as though Abram was content to wait for God's timing in the fulfillment of the promise. But Sarai was not. After waiting for ten years, she takes the initiative and seizes upon the accepted social custom of that day and offers her maidservant, Hagar, to her husband to bear his child. It's clear from the outset that the divinely inspired text does not approve of the plan. It might have been socially acceptable, but social and cultural norms do not determine or influence divine standards. There are two related problems here, as I see it in chapter 16. with, With regard to Sarai and her plan, both her intent and the means that she was going to employ were wrong. Both intent and means were wrong. First, Sarai attempted to fulfill the promise her way. So she circumvented God in the process. So that was wrong intent. And second, the process itself was sinful, which means that the means employed were wrong. Sarai's attitude in the event is betrayed. By her blaming God for the predicament that she's in, which is in the words of British scholar Gordon Winham, hardly a model of piety. There's an old French proverb that goes, people count up the faults of those who keep them waiting. And that's exactly what Sarai did. In her mind, however subtle the expression, God was treating her unfairly. And as a result, she inferred bad intent on God's part. This is a a trait of the immature, both spiritually and physically. It's a trait of the immature. Then in a transparent reference to Genesis chapter 3, we find Abram, like Adam, listening to the voice of his wife, which is idiomatic for obeying his wife. And Sarai taking and giving Hagar to Abram. Those verbs being the exact same verbs that were used of Eve and Adam in Genesis chapter 3 when Eve gave the fruit to Adam. Moses, who is the human author working under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, wants us to feel as though we are witnessing a return of the fall. Although the results in chapter 16, while terrible enough, will not be as disastrous as the results that we saw in chapter 3. The process itself was sinful because it violated God's prescription of the one-man, one-woman marriage as the authorized means of procreation. That was given in the end of Genesis chapter 2. Yes, I understand Jacob had offspring through multiple women, as did David and Solomon and many others in the scriptures. But we must be careful to distinguish between what God allows and what he prescribes. You see the distinction between what God allows and and what God prescribes. The scriptures sometimes, in fact, I would say the scriptures often, record an event without endorsing that event. Frankly, most of David's problems that he had in life can be traced back to his following social custom rather than divine prescription, especially when it came to women. One might ask, why did God prosper these men? And these men that I mentioned, Jacob, David, Solomon, and others, they were prospered. Why did, they, why did God prosper them in spite of their failure to follow the divine prescription? Well, I don't know. I wouldn't venture a guess. I, I, can't, I can't get into the mind of God that way. I have no way of knowing. But I'll tell you this, Abram, Jacob, David, and others were prospered in spite of their actions in this area, not because of them. And that's an important distinction. They were prospered in spite of their actions, not because of them. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. And when this chapter begins, Abram is now 99 years old. So there have been 13 silent years here. Thirteen years where apparently God has not spoken to Abram. Or if he did, it certainly is not recorded. Maybe that's because Abram was, was walking out of fellowship with God. We just don't know. That would be going beyond what the text says. We can only infer that from this text. But now 13 years have passed, and I want you to get the picture. Abram is 99 years old. This chapter, chapter 17, is largely a report of divine revelation that's given to Abram with brief little narrative reports scattered in between of Abram's response. Now, one of the responses today is going to be extremely brief, but it's extremely important, the response that Abram has to this revelation from God. In this divine disclosure, we find the Lord not only guaranteeing, guaranteeing that Sarah, Sarah, her name is going to be changed here soon, I'm going to start using the new one for a change, that Sarah will bear a child through Abram when Abram is 90, when she's 90 and Abram is 100. That's one of the guarantees. Another guarantee is that kings would come from them, and there also would be a sign of the covenant. Here, the sign of the covenant, which being circumcision would bring, around, bring about conformity to the covenant. That'll be our subject in a following time. This chapter can be structured into four parts. Four parts. The first is God's assurance of the promise. That's our subject for today. That's verses 1 through 8. Second, God's requirement of circumcision as the sign of the covenant. That'll be our subject for next week. That's verses 9 through 14. The third part of this section this very important chapter. God's specific word on the fulfillment of the promise through Sarah. Not through Hagar, not through some other means, but through Sarah. That's verses 15 through 22. And finally, in this chapter, we'll close with Abram's Compliance with the sign of the conformity of the covenant, which is circumcision, he complies by faith. So, four parts, the first part of which we'll cover today, verses 1 through 8, God's assurance of the promise. So, read our, would you read with me these verses as we prepare to cover them expositionally? Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai in Hebrew walk before me and be blameless and i will establish my covenant between me and you and i will multiply you exceedingly and then now the brief narrative begins in verse 3 and abram fell on his face and god talked with him saying as for me behold my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations no longer shall your name be called abram or abram but your name shall be called abraham For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you. And kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. And your descendants after you. And throughout their generations. For get this. An everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. And then in verse 8. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan watch again for an everlasting possession and I will be their god the 13 years that have passed between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17 apparently have done nothing to increase Sarah's ability to bear children and have focused in the intervening years Abram has apparently begun to focus his attention on Ishmael as the possible heir that he's been looking for. I'm afraid that sometimes we gloss over the time factor a little too easily in this passage. It's going to be 25 years from the time that Abraham originally received this promise to the time of its fulfillment. 25 years. That's a long time to wait looking back, it may not seem so long, but 25 years is a long time looking forward. 25 years ago today, you know who was president of the United States? Ronald Reagan. Mikhail Gorbachev had just assumed the leadership of the Soviet Union. The the federal debt as a percentage of GDP was 4.3%. For those of you who know your economics, it's fixed to go way higher than that. And the cost of a first-class postage stamp was... 22 cents. It's a long time ago. Rock Hudson was dying of AIDS 22 years ago, 25 years ago today. Amadeus had just won Best Picture at the Oscars. And Tina Turner was singing, What's Love Got to Do With It? You remember that. Remember a company called Wang? Wang, the computer company, was making a move to compete with IBM as the leader in the production of the personal computer. And the lead news story 25 years ago this morning was that the Unabomber had struck again, this time in Berkeley, California, and had injured a professor there. 25 years ago today, this morning, 25 years ago this morning, my wife Cindy was seven months pregnant with our first child, Marcia. And I had blondish brown hair. (laughs) And weighed right at 193 pounds, which is... A long time ago. (laughs) A lot can happen. A lot can happen in 25 years. And and granted, while looking back 25 years ago today does in some ways seem like yesterday. But if you had told me 25 years ago to look into the future and see what was happening today, that that, that that little baby that would be born on July 15th just a couple months later would now be with child herself. That's a long time in the future to project, isn't it? Well, that's how long Abram waited. God gave him a promise. And I'm telling you, when I get promises, I would like for them to be fulfilled before the sun goes down. If possible, I don't want to wait. I'm terrible at waiting. I have a problem with lines. My wife prays for me fervently when I go on mission trips. Not so much for my safety. Not so much that I would come home in one piece. I'm sure she prays for the people I'm going to minister to. But her main prayer is that I would behave myself in the lines at the airport, this last time when I, was, um, when I was coming back from Manila to Tokyo to Los Angeles to Houston, it happened to be April 1st. And my daughter, who realized it was April 1st, called my wife and said, listen, I just heard from Dad, he's been detained in Dubai. And so he said, oh my gosh, what did he do? I says, well, he got in a ruckus in a line over there. Because <laughs> I don't like to wait. I got a lot more line stories, but I, I could take the rest of the time doing that. But the point is, very few of us like to wait. And like that French proverb said, we tend, to, we tend to point out the faults of those who make us wait. Waiting will test your faith. Wait, waiting will make you rethink your view of God sometimes. Waiting may make you rethink your view of your own spirituality sometimes. But 25 years is a long time. To wait. And we, when we put it in that perspective, then maybe we're not going to be quite so hard on Abram and Sarai or Abraham and Sarah, as they'll be known as this chapter concludes. 25 years is a long time. So when we talk about the faith of Abraham, when we talk about the faith of Sarah, we need to remember this is not a lightweight faith. This is no lightweight test. These are serious tests. I'm just like you. If I pray about something in the evening, I would love for that problem to be gone in the morning. But, you know, oftentimes they're not. Oftentimes you've prayed fervently in the evening, and then you get to the morning, and your dearly beloved still has cancer. You may pray for something fervently in the evening, and in the morning your husband still doesn't have a job. You know what I mean. Twenty-five years is a long time to wait. So this is no lightweight test of faith for these two people that are involved. Now for the reader, as we read through Genesis, sometimes we can be a little too hard on them because we see success, failure, success, failure, but we we need to realize these are high points in the lives of these people. But we have just come off a chapter of failure. There's no way of getting around that. Neither one of them was faithful and both of them were wrong in what they did. But now we're going to see something totally different today. In this chapter, as the chapter begins, the Lord identifies himself for the first time in Genesis as what the New American Standard translates, Lord Almighty. The Hebrew says El Shaddai. Many of you may be familiar with the Michael Card song, El Shaddai, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. Well, this is the first time that God identifies himself that way in the scriptures. And this has been a notoriously difficult term to translate, El Shaddai. Jerome was the first to translate it with, with some sort of form of what we would call omnipotence or almighty God when he translated the Hebrew into Latin in what we know as the Vulgate or the Latin Vulgate. So Jerome, and this was 300 plus years after Christ, is the first one to translate El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty or God Almighty. That rendering happened to stick, and if you... If we were to take a poll, we won't do it. But if we were to take a poll of what your particular Bible reads, it probably reads something like that in chapter 17, verse 1. Certainly New American Standard and in NIV, I believe the New King James does as well. Very few actually don't. So Jerome's translation stuck, but it's still difficult to translate that. Sometimes there are Hebrew scholars that will go back and look at the word Shaddai, and they say, well, it means either mountain or breast. So they they make a a determination on what the, the term El Shaddai means based upon that, those, um, those studies are, are difficult. We're not really sure what the word actually means, but we can know how the term El Shaddai, or even Shaddai, is used in the Scriptures, and especially in Genesis. Every time this title of God is used, it's used in the context of fertility, procreation. The the blessing of childbearing. Every time it's used somewhere in the context, we have the promise of fertility. Now, outside of Genesis, when the term El Shaddai or Shaddai is used, it typically carries with it, or it's in some sort of context, speaking of God's sovereignty. You know what that means? Sovereignty means God's the boss. That's what sovereignty in in Koine English means. God's the boss. But it also can be used in, in places where it refers to God's justice. So, in Genesis, it refers, it's used in locations, with the promise of fertility, in other places, sovereignty and justice. So, for purposes of our discussion, since we're in Genesis, and since it's, we don't want to recreate the wheel here, reinvent the wheel, we'll, we'll stick with God Almighty, understanding, though, that it's probably more inclusive with regard to God's attributes than just his omnipotence. You see that? That's just one of his attributes. It's it's more reflective of the entirety of his divine perfection and not just one aspect of his divine perfection. You know, it's interesting. When we study theology, whether it's in a, in a church service like we, we do here pretty much every week and without apology, or whether it's in a Bible college or perhaps in a, in a seminary, when we, when we study theology, it's very common for us to treat it as though it was a pie. And to, to, when it comes to the attributes of God, rather, the essence of God, the perfections of God, to, to treat it as though it was a pie. And we take a little slice of the pie out called omnipotence, and we place it on a, on a table, and we dissect that piece of the pie, and we learn all that we can about God's omnipotence. Then we put that back. We take another slice of the pie that we may say is God's righteousness. And then we study all that we can. We look at all the passages in the Scriptures with regard to righteousness, and the same thing with omniscience and justice and et- et- His eternality. But you see, God's not really that way. We have to study him that way. But God is a simple being, not a simpleton. You see, sometimes we have to be careful with our terms. But when we say God is a simple being, it means that God is is incapable of being divided. That's why Charles Ryrie defined God as the sum total of his infinite attributes. So, for example, his love will never act inconsistently with his sovereignty. His sovereignty will never act inconsistently with his justice. So when we think of God, think of him as one unified whole. That's what I'd like for you to do today. And when we think of the term El Shaddai, and I hope you think of this the next time you hear that most wonderful song, El Shaddai. It's a beautiful song. the next time you hear that, I I want you to trigger in your mind the entirety of God's infinite perfections. Remember that from this lesson, I hope, that God's a simple being, he's incapable of being divided, and God's the sum total of who he is. We can't just dissect out an individual attribute. Now, when that happens, when we do dissect out an individual attribute, for example, like like sovereignty, sometimes we we move into something like, say, hyper-Calvinism or extreme Calvinism, if that's all we focus upon. If, for example, we we leave sovereignty aside and only focus on, let's say, the love of God, then we may get into some extreme form of Arminianism. If we we look at it all together, then I think we'll have a balanced view of not only theology, but a balanced view of the Christian life. So remember that. God is the sum total of his infinite perfections. It'll help. And El Shaddai, I think, is one of those titles that he gives us that reminds us of that. That we can't just pick out his power. Yes, his power is involved in the fertility issue. Of course. But isn't his love involved? Remember Hannah? Isn't his love and his compassion involved there as well? Isn't his justice involved? Isn't his faithfulness involved? Of course it is. So, El Shaddai. But we'll stick with God Almighty just for purposes of not confusing the translation. Now, El Shaddai's message begins with two imperatives. Now, imperatives are just a fancy word of saying commands. Which means that they're not optional. Now, they may be not followed, but from God's perspective, they're not optional. He's telling us to do this. You see the distinction? It doesn't mean it's a sure thing it's going to happen. <coughs> I wish it was. But it does mean it's a sure thing that this is what God wants. He wants Abram to do two things. First, to walk before him. And secondly, to be blameless. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, God says in chapter 17, verse 1. This is the equivalent of the New Testament walking in fellowship with God. Or submitting, if you prefer, submitting to the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit in one's life. Abram was to submit himself, freely submit himself to God's sovereign will, and place himself under God's protective care. That was to be Abram's responsibility. When he does this, Oh, listen so carefully when he does this he will not be sinless there's been only one sinless person to ever walk this planet and that's our Lord that's my Lord and that's your Lord that's the one in whom we've placed our faith that's the one that we're depending upon to get us to heaven not our own works not our own goodness none of us can be good enough to earn our way to heaven but we depend upon him so we submit ourselves to the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit Abram was willing to do that. And he submitted himself to God's sovereign will. And he placed himself under God's protective care. But it doesn't mean when he's walking in fellowship, or even when I'm walking in fellowship, that we will be a perfect being. No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that while he's walking in fellowship, he'll lead a righteous and holy life while he is in fellowship. Now, the imagery here is very interesting. The imagery here is something like that of a sheep placing itself, if this could be done, but a sheep placing itself under the protective care of a shepherd. Now, it's always interesting to me why the Bible calls us, you and me both, sheep. This metaphor is not very flattering. Because sheep aren't the smartest, at least I'm told, aren't the smartest of all animals. And we have a few people in our congregation that have raised sheep in the past, and they're not here today, thankfully, because they'd be saying, Amen to that, they're not the smartest of all animals. They need to be led. They need to be cared for. They can't protect themselves. So the best thing that a sheep could do is to voluntarily follow along with the shepherd. Because the shepherd had that big hook or the, the cane with a big hook on the end of it. And if a sheep would get too far to the, to the edge and was almost ready to go off the cliff, that shepherd could reach down and yank that sheep back and protect it. Now, it may hurt when that happens. Because sometimes God God does that to us too. We get a little too close to the the edge, and He yanks us by the neck and brings us back over here. And that's called divine discipline from time to time. But we ought to be happy. We ought to be happy that it hurts, so we don't tend to walk near the edge again. But see, that's one of the pictures. That's part of the visual imagery that Moses' original audience would have seen when they when they saw these phrases come along. As long as the sheep follows the shepherd it will be under that protective umbrella of the shepherd's care. But there's another way that's perhaps more modern that may, that may preach to most of us a little more explicitly, and that's the picture. If you can picture this, picture out on Westheimer, which is not too far from here, on a Saturday afternoon, when cars are just buzzing up and down, and just left and right, and it's very hard to even pull in. Heaven help you if you've got to make a left turn. Onto West Westheimer certain times of day. But picture this in your mind. Picture a father, a loving, kind, strong father, and a little two- or three-year-old little boy. Now, if that little two- or three-year-old little boy was to venture out into Westheimer, and in that traffic in Westheimer by himself, he's going to be toast. It'll, the, the results are going to be disastrous. It will be terrible. But picture that little boy reaching up and putting his hand in his father's hand. And that father looking lovingly down upon that little boy and say, stick with me, stay right by my side, and everything's going to be okay. And then they walk across the street together under the father's protective care. Not under the little boy's protective care, he's got none. But under that father's protective care, that's another, that's another way that this visual imagery can be understood. So when God tells Abram, walk with me, he said, walk lockstep with me. Walk in fellowship with me. And if you do that, Abram, everything shall be okay. When you're going to experience problems is when you begin to walk out of fellowship with God. When the little boy tears his hand away from his father and wants to run off. as All of us have seen that happen, haven't we? In grocery stores and parking lots. And you think, oh my goodness, especially if it's in a parking lot. Does it, doesn't it send goosebumps up your arm think something's about to happen to that child? Because we know instinctively that that's not the place of protection for that child. Now, you've been there as a parent, and if you hadn't been there as a parent, you've been there as a child. You're much more comfortable, you're much safer when you're in the protective care of the dad. And that's what God wants for Abram walk with me and be blameless. Two imperatives the first or the second resulting from the first. In verse two, Abram reminds, or God reminds Abram of the covenant and the key provision of an heir. Now, remember again, they've been waiting 25 years for this. This is no lightweight test. 25 years they've been waiting, and it's about to happen. Oh, it's about to happen! It's really soon. It's going to come to happen. At least now, 25 years they will wait. Actually, 24 years they've been waiting. 25 years they will before the baby is born. But God is already unilaterally established his covenant with Abram. We've seen that before. Remember back in chapter 15, we, we, when we said that the Abrahamic covenant was a unilateral covenant, it was, a, it was an unconditional covenant. So when we think back to, this, for example, Genesis 15:7, you recall that God alone passed through the pieces. If, if you remember that imagery, there, was, there were animals that were slaughtered and, and placed on either side of a path and using imagery that was well known at that time of ancient kings cutting a covenant with one another, making a treaty, if you will, they didn't just sign the treaty. They went through this visual act where they would join arm in arm, and the two kings would walk through the carcasses after agreeing to a treaty, and as they walked through the carcasses, they were saying, in effect, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I be as these animals are now. In other words, dead. But you see here, the the visual imagery is employed, but not in a full sense, only in half the sense, because Abram is watching this. He's not walking through the pieces. Only God walks through the pieces. God obligates himself to fulfill this promise. That's why it's so important. People sometimes say, does this matter or does that matter? Does it matter that Israel's in the land today or does it not matter? Does it matter if there's a future for Israel or why are we even talking about that? Why do we spend time in our churches and our Sunday schools and our Bible studies and evangelical Christianity speaking of a future for Israel? Yes, it matters. You bet it matters because it speaks to the faithfulness of God. If God established a unilateral covenant and then, and then backs out on it, then he's not the faithful God that's described in the scriptures. So yes, it does matter. And this is a unilateral covenant. But we, so we've already seen that. The Abrahamic covenant is not based for its fulfillment fulfillment on Abram's obedience. Uh, In this verse, verse 2, where God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. In this verse, God is not changing the terms of the covenant. Those have already been set. He's going to keep his promises. But in the context of Genesis chapter 17... Abram will exercise obedience in submitting to circumcision, which was not intended uh, to introduce a new or a separate covenant, but circumcision was a sign of submission to a covenant that had already been cut, a covenant that already existed. Chapter 16 records Abram failing to walk with God. Now, in order to enjoy the blessings of this unconditional covenant, it's going to happen, but in order to enjoy the blessings of this unconditional covenant, Abram would need to be in fellowship with God. Now, let me see if I can illustrate that from a New Testament perspective. The Scriptures tell us that God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Most of you heard that verse a long time ago. For many of you, that was the very first verse that you've ever heard. When a Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul, oh, so long ago, what do I need to do to be saved? The Apostle answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And we understand that once you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God has promised, God has promised that you will have eternal life, and you're going to live in heaven with Him forever. And all of us understand that, at least most of us do, I think. The the scriptures tell us at the the end of that great chapter of Romans, actually the the first chapter, the first verse of Romans chapter 8, says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you've you've been attending on Wednesday night, you know that that term, in Christ Jesus, is a very special term that Paul uses for someone who has been justified, for someone who is in the body of Christ, for someone who is saved. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. At the end of the chapter, he closes this great chapter... That way, he says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God has promised us that once we trust him, once we trust him, that we're going to go to heaven for sure, 100%. 100% sure, and 100% of the people that have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life are going to heaven. Sure thing. But not all of us enjoy our salvation like we should. Because we're not walking in fellowship with him. It's going to happen. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, you are going to heaven. But right now, as you sit here this morning, maybe you're, you're not enjoying the fact that you're a Christian at all. You're not enjoying the Christian life at all. Well, I tell you, the reason you're not enjoying it is because you're not walking in fellowship with God. So in, to enjoy the blessings of that, if I could call it covenant with God, that we call eternal security, to enjoy the blessings, you need to walk in fellowship with him. Now, to enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham needed to walk in fellowship with him. But it's going to happen. Now, look at verse 3. This is one of those... Little brief notes of narratives, but it's so incredibly important. Watch, God has spoken. It's the first time in 13 years that God has appeared to him that we know of. The first time in 13 years. He's been waiting now 24 years. will be 25 by the time he has the baby. And now God speaks to him. He reestablishes, or rather re-reminds, reminds Abram of what's happening here. The fact that there is a covenant and it is going to be fulfilled And verse 3, and Abram fell on his face. When faced with the revelation of God, Abram worshipped. And the posture that is revealed here demonstrates the intensity of Abram's worship. He falls flat on his face in a recognition of the majesty of the one who had revealed himself and his intentions to him. That's why he falls flat on his face. He says nothing. You know, some people, when they get nervous, say way too much. Abram's a mature man by this time. And when God reveals himself to him in this way, Abram just, by his posture, worships. A lot of different ways to worship, by the way. This is one of those. He just falls on his face and shuts up. He says nothing. Nothing really could be said at this moment. In fact, God speaking, the best thing he could do would be to to be silent until God finishes speaking. Oh, this is magnificent. This snapshot happens so quickly in the text that it's easy to miss. But it reveals a lot about the maturity of this man, Abram. People like Abram and Moses and David... All failed. It's true. Every one of them failed. And their failures are recorded for all to see. In fact, in a permanent way, in the scriptures, which will live and abide forever, their failures are recorded. But each one of the men that I mentioned in Oh So Many More were all individuals that recognized that God is God and they weren't. And that seems so simple. They realized they didn't live lives of sinless perfection. But they humbly acknowledged the perfection of the one that they worshipped. And this this one little phrase is so key into understanding what a mature believer really looks like. They understood the perfection, the infinite perfections of the one that they worshipped. Oh, that we would learn to do the same. In verses 4 through 8 then, God restates the terms of the covenant and gives Abram a new name. Read along with me if you will now. But as for me, God is speaking again now. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram or Avram, but your name shall be called Abraham or Avraam. The name Abram means exalted father. Av meaning father. Ram meaning exalted. When he's given this name by Terah as a boy, he's not a father. So the name Abram or Avram is not really referring to the one who's received the name. When when the name Abram or Avram is given to this young boy, it's a reference back to his daddy. Terah was the one. Who was great. So it really could be understood something like this. He is exalted with respect to his father. And another way of putting that would be that he has a distinguished lineage. He comes from a good bloodline. That's one way to understand the name Abram. Abraham or Avraham is a dialectical variant on the name Abram. And it's a wordplay on another Hebrew term. The difference is subtle, but it's important of Hamon. Now, Abram's name, or Abraham's name, in, in Hebrew would be pronounced Avram, But it's a word play on Av Hamon, which means father of a multitude. This name, Avram, looked to the past, into Avram's noble lineage with his father Terah. But Avram, which is a word play on Av Hamon, this is, a, this is a name that looks to the future. and Isn't it wonderful to look to the future instead of always being focused on the past? It looks to the future and God's intention to make this man the father of a multitude. Now, in the last couple of verses here, the seed and the land portions of the covenant are restated. But I want you to notice, in, particularly in verses 7 and 8, that twice this phrase, everlasting, is going to come up. Indicating the permanence of this covenant. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Then in verse 8, that's the seed portion in verse 7, the land portion of verse 8. And this is what's so pertinent for today's discussion. Not just in... In international circles. But frankly, in evangelical circles. A lot of discussion about this. Should we support Israel? What's our responsibility to Jewish people? Are they still the people of God? Do they have a future? Well, it certainly seems like they have a future. And part of that future includes the land that they will possess. And look at it in verse 8. I will give to you and to your descendants after you. Your seed after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for watch an everlasting possession. As a teacher told me one one time, what part of that don't you understand? Everlasting. Now, how more clear could God have been? Just like we count on having everlasting life, I don't plan on getting to heaven and getting there for ten years, and God saying, you know what? Changed my mind about you. I reviewed the record. I don't think so. I saw what you did. No, no, no. Ten years all you're going to stay here. You're going to hell now. Wouldn't be very nice. But it also wouldn't be a fulfillment of the promise. Because when he promised me, promises me eternal life, it's eternal life. If he promised an everlasting covenant, then that means it's an everlasting Covenant. So verse 7, the everlasting covenant refers to the sea portion. Verse 8, the everlasting covenant refers to the land portion. Now the specific boundaries of the land covenant are stated here as the land of Abram's sojournings, all the land of Canaan. Now the specific boundaries were mentioned back in chapter 15 from the river Egypt to the river Euphrates. And the Jews have never occupied this territory. The closest that they came was under the reign of Solomon. But even then, they didn't occupy under Solomon's reign half, even half of what they would one day occupy. This is a promise that has not yet been fulfilled. It will be fulfilled in the future. When? I don't know. Some people make predictions. I'm not going to do it. Could it be within a few days from now? No, you can't. (laughs) Because even if we were raptured today, there would be at least seven years that have to occur. Before this, the clock's going to start ticking on that. But yes, they will at some point fulfill all of this, occupy all this land. There is a future for Israel. And one day they will occupy all the territory that's been promised them. From the river Egypt all the way to the river Euphrates. Because God is faithful. And as I close, that's what I want to leave you with. God is faithful. God is faithful. Yes, he's sovereign, he's omnipotent, he's loving, and as a part of his infinite perfections, he's also faithful. He acts consistently, perfectly consistently with who he is. What he promises, he will deliver. And that, that, that is true whether your name is Avram, whether your name is Abraham, or whether your name is fill-in-the-blank with your name. Because it's the same God that was faithful to Abraham. That same God is faithful to you. And what he's promised you, he will fulfill. This is not just for the superstars of the Bible. It's for the rest of us as well. God is faithful to you. He loves you every bit as much as he loved Abraham. He is going to deliver what he's promised. Chapter 17 is an important chapter in the flow of Genesis for many reasons. Not the least of which, I believe, is its timing. Abram had been waiting a long time for God to give him a son through Sarah. In his mind, at this point, before God spoke to him that day, I'm sure it looked like it was never going to happen. That's why he kept pushing Ishmael. But just when he needed it most, along comes God. With a restatement of the covenant and a word of encouragement, a word of encouragement to a very mature believer. God appears, he reassures Abram, and he comforts him. The same God that appeared to Abram, reassuring and comforting him, is the God who comforts us in our times of doubt. In despair, the God who saved us by grace through faith sustains us by that same grace. It's the same God, my friends. Oh, please don't just take this as a lesson about someone who occurred on the dusty pages of history, four thousand or so years ago. No, this is personal. It's the same God. The same God that loved and encouraged and reassured Abram is the one that will encourage you tonight, this afternoon, no matter what it is you're going through. It's the same God. He's both mighty. He's merciful. He's sovereign. And he's tender. El Shaddai. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this account it gives us a glimpse not only of your greatness and your majesty and your faithfulness your tenderness but also of Abram's response falling flat on his face and worshiping you saying nothing but absorbing your revelation into his soul eagerly listening to what you had to say Father I thank you that that to you there this was, was literally just like yesterday it's like today for with you I, I know you're Omniscience knows no boundaries. All knowledge with you is simultaneous, and and you're the same God. And I thank you for helping Abram. And I pray for us, Father, because so many within the sound of my voice today, if not everyone within the sound of my voice today, is struggling with issues and problems and pains and heartbreaks and despairs. Help us to remember that you still hear. you still see, You're still the God of compassion and mercy that visited Abram so long ago. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.